Welcome to Everyday Buddhism, making every day better by applying the proven tools found in Buddhist concepts. Welcome to episode 64 of Everyday Buddhism, making every day better. In this episode, I talk with Kyra Jewel Lingo. It's a very special episode because she is the author of a newly released book, so new. It was released just two days ago as I record this, so just a few days ago. The book is We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons on Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. Kyra Jewel Lingo is a Dharma teacher who teaches from her own unique perspective, blending spirituality and meditation with social justice. Kyra grew up in a monastic-like Christian community working with the poor, and at the age of 25, she entered a Buddhist monastery in the Plum Village tradition and spent 15 years living as a nun under the guidance of Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh. She received authorization to teach from Titnat Han and became a Zen teacher in 2007. She's also a teacher in the Vipassana Insight lineage through Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Today, she sees her work as a continuation of the engaged Buddhism developed by Titnat Han, as well as the work of her parents, inspired by their stories and her father's own work with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the desegregation of the South. In addition to writing We Were Made for These Times, Kyra Jewell is also the editor of Titnat Han's book Planting Seeds, Practicing Mindfulness with Children. Kyra Jewell speaks five languages and she shares Buddhist meditation, secular mindfulness, and compassion practice internationally, providing spiritual mentoring to individuals and communities working at the intersection of racial, climate, and social justice. Her teaching focuses on activists, educators, artists, youth and families, and black, indigenous, and people of color and includes the interweaving of art, play, nature, ecology, and embodied mindfulness practice. Kyra Jewell teaches in the Plum Village Zen tradition and the Vipassana tradition, and she lives in New York. Readers can connect with her at kyrajewell.com, that's all one word, lowercase, kyrajewell.com, as well as on Insight Timer, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Dharma Seed. I will put a link to her website where you can learn more about her and find talks, guided meditations, and links to special courses, webinars, and of course, the link will also include her new book, which I will put in my show notes. You know, it seems completely redundant for me to bring this up yet again, but the dark and uncertain times we have been living in for the past few years particularly during the global pandemic, from which we have not yet emerged after nearly two years. Well, what we all need, whether we consciously recognize it or not, is a voice of hope to keep us from being washed away by despair or indifference or just overwhelm 
Kyra Jewell's voice is that voice. It is sweet, yet strong. In her book and her course on Insight Timer, which I have personally been using in my daily practice, her words flow like a soothing river of compassion and courage. And had Orrin J. Sofer not written this review that I'm about to quote, I might have. I echo his words completely. He writes in this intimate, courageous account of her own journey, Kyra Jewel Lingo offers all of us an inspiring example of how these ancient teachings can be a guide, an inspiration, and a resource in trying times. Powerful, clear, and concise wisdom, unquote. Yes, her book promises all that, and we talk about her book and so much more in the following conversation, which I hope you'll continue to listen to. I think it is one of the most enjoyable and important conversations I've had with any of my guests. And that conversation starts now. Hi, Kyra Julingo, and welcome to Everyday Buddhism. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. It's a great honor. Thank you so much, Wendy, for having me. Really happy to be with you. Well, first, let me say that I read your beautiful book and I have practiced with it and with your course on Insight Timer. The simple, and don't, don't, don't think I'm going to stop at simple, the simple yet profound teachings expressed in much the same way I find the teachings of Titnan Han have been oh a tremendous help for me at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, sort of like a gentle hug and it's mm-hmm. an expression of support. Your book and your voice have helped me keep going as my mm-hmm. teacher, my, that's my teacher's mantra, keep going, as mm-hmm. my teacher consistently urges. Um, and so when I find my courage and compassion waning, I, I, which I have been again recently, um, you, you being sort of immersed in your class is has been great. So thank you. <laughs> oh, so glad to hear that. <laughs> and I just want to let everyone know that Kyra Jewell has been singing me to sleep, wink, wink, in her Insight Timer course of the same name. Um, if you want to have Kyra Jewell Lingo sing you to sleep, you can too, because in many of the lessons, Kyra Jewell will sing a little song emphasizing the main theme of a particular lesson, like the five remembrances in the sixth lesson on impermanence. So, um, getting serious now, instead of going, talking about being sung to sleep. um, I shared your, your longer bio in the introduction to our conversation. um, But you can share a little more about your experience as a nun. And particularly maybe more of the flavor of what you feel your experience as a nun within Plum Village has developed in you and your in you and your practice you know mm-hmm. that might not have been developed otherwise you know as as maybe either a lay practitioner or, or in another in another monastic group and mm-hmm. so although you talk quite a bit about it in the last chapter of your book which i will read from next and so stand by for your answer i'm going to confuse things a little bit i'm particularly interested in how you um, 
personally sort of transferred or evolved your practice from that of a monastic to an everyday, as I will use it, uh, lay practitioner. You know, you wrote, this is how you explained it in that last chapter, quote, as a nun, I believe the monastic community was the only place I could truly practice deeply. And part of my terror of leaving was the fear that I would lose my practice without the 24 hour a day support of a residential monastic community. But as I traveled and led retreats and events on my own for the first time, I experienced more and more clearly lay communities that were extremely dedicated and put incredible energy into nourishing their local groups with mindfulness. And then you go on to say that on previous teaching trips, you'd always traveled with another nun and then you were alone. And so you kind of felt vulnerable, but then you noticed that the barrier between monastics and lay people came down and you experienced how held and supported you were by the Sangha body. And this is the key here, what I loved what you wrote and how my true home is right here not only in the monastery around other monastics, but also in the middle of daily life in a busy city surrounded by all kinds of people. My true home is anywhere there is practice, anywhere I'm showing up fully present to connect and be with others. I began to touch and understand that I had already had everything I needed. So based on that, I really love the last couple of lines where you emphasize that the Sangha body is being truly everywhere because, you know, when you first get into Buddhism, it's very confusing, I think, because they say, well, the Sangha is only the monastic com community. And that really, I think, gets lay people all messed up <laughs> and that your true home is anywhere there is practice where you are, quote, showing up fully present. So maybe you could talk a little more about that evolution and maybe also a little more about your new life as a lay teacher, how it's evolved and maybe what a sample of your new practice would be outside of the monastic community. So I know that was a lot, but I know you were following because you were nodding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so maybe to start with, um, what it was like for me to be a nun, right? Is that the first piece of? Well, sort of, a, yeah. What it was like, you could, you can give a little bit of that and then kind of go into, um, mm -hmm. what I wanted to know was really what you, what do you think was unique in your, you know, what did you get from being a nun in, in Thai's community um, mm -hmm. in Plum Village that you might not have gotten as a lay practitioner or in another monastic community. I, I mean, yeah. if you, if you could actually isolate that thing, I don't know what sure. it would be. Sure. Um, well, I think the biggest answer is community. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I, not that that's unique to Plum Village, but it, it's the, the deep connection to a teacher was so important. Like really the first time I saw Thai, I just was like, this is my teacher. We call Thich Nhat Hanh Thai, means teacher in Vietnamese. Um, his students call him by that. And there was, there was this real structure that the monastic life provided um, that was a, a, an extraordinary training for me. 
I mean, it's like military training in a way where, you know, after someone comes out of the military or, you know, even if they're in it their whole lives, like there's certain things that they just can do because they've had that structure that's been holding them in terms of whether it's like physical discipline of waking up at a certain time or exercising in a certain way, or just the, the corporate, you know, really feeling yourself part of this larger body. So being a part of a monastic community and with this teacher that just really was like an embodiment of love and wisdom and that um, was, had such a capacity to meet, meet people where they were on, on so many different levels. To see that being modeled was some kind of transmission that it was possible in each of us, that each of us could become, you know, the, the awakened Buddha that we were meant to be. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, but, but you, were, you belonged to this group that was really uh, keeping you on track. <laughs> and when you'd get off track, they would tell you. <laughs> so you had constant, <laughs> constant mirroring. You know, we used to joke as monastics, people would say, as when you're married or when you're in a couple, you have one person that you're married to, but as a monastic, you're married to hundreds of people. <laughs> so it's like more difficult because, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging in particular ways. It's also very rewarding in, in many ways, but, you know, I would say that I, I just, you know, it was a very fun, <laughs> very joyful it, it also had, you know, definitely it's, you know, difficult moments and, and times of conflict or, you know, personal despair. There were lots of everything, the whole human spectrum of, of possible experiences. But it was a time in which I really had a lot of playmates, a lot of people who mm-hmm would accompany me if I wanted to do something or they would invite me to do creative things, which were really important to me. In addition to this sort of disciplined spiritual practice and really deeply learning, you know, the history and the practice and the profound, you know, psychological wisdom of our Buddhist tradition. Plus more than that, Thay was a very broad thinking teacher so he would bring in Christianity and we'd study Christianity. He'd bring in Theravadan practices and we'd study it along Mahayana. He wasn't like, you know, just one path. But so we were getting all of this training, but at the same time we were like, we were a village and we were creating plays and dances and making music together and writing songs and writing plays and you know, that's what I mean when I say playmates, because that was a really important part of the monastic experience for me was like, we'd get together and have a jam session for a few hours with visiting musicians. And many of the monastics had a lot of musical talent or artistic talent. So, you know, it was like a lot of um, space and, and um encouragement of my creativity so I learned how to cook for 300 people you know and how to to take care of the cars I was the car maintenance so you know and I lots I learned about editing books I mean there was a lot of ways that I got to bring out what I had in me because of what the community 
needed or 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 what people were interested in there was a lot of um of joy of 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 creating beautiful moments of connection of happiness of togetherness and that is something i feel is quite special about the plum village tradition there's so many of the monastics are young yeah you know like teenage up until like early 30s like that's just the majority age of the monastics and that i think is unique in many among many monastic centers like i remember people coming to deer park and the brothers were playing basketball and they were playing volleyball and they were like wow i didn't think monastics had this much fun <laughs> you know or so there was just a, a kind of lightness and and freshness and you know what was unique i think about plum village was the emphasis from Thich Han from Thai on on gentleness on softness on it was very sweet he was very motherly and you know on us really enjoying our lives as monastics he really really was happy when we were happy and created lots of experiences and the sangha created lots of experiences for deep connection and and beauty and yeah. Yeah. You know, that really comes across in uh, Titnat Han's teaching, even in reading his books, you feel that motherly sense. Mm. And that's sort of what I was hinting at when I referenced that at the beginning of my intro to you was that I felt that same way um, mm. in reading your book. It, mm. it comes across in the exact same way, like a, mm. a gentle, nurturing, everything's okay kind of hug <laughs> you know you know what i mean and 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 so it, it does seem like those of you in his community um get get imbued with that that sensibility so my my follow-up question to that was how do you transition that you know wonderful community that that sense of you know having playmates and 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 uh Tinanhana's uh, motherly head and how do you transition that to even though you know you are you know living as a, a lay dharma teacher you you're also a lay practitioner how do you tra make that transition yeah yeah it was hard <laughs> it was probably the hardest thing i did um in my life because yeah there was just so much that was right for me in that in that life but but I really felt I needed to to move into another form and um you know one of the things that really helped me in that time of transition was doing long silent retreats at IMS yeah, I really, I really needed, and I also spent five months teaching at Schumacher College in the UK. That's actually where I disrobed. Uh -huh. So I found places where I there was some kind of a container, some kind of a buffer between me and the world <laughs> at its high speed. <laughs> and so, either in the, the silence, which was just so, um, so nurturing to be outside of the community. I needed to be outside of the community, but it was a very monastic environment. Everyone was practicing celibacy, even if they were lay people. And um, 
in silence on their own, you know, following the schedule altogether for either six weeks or three months. And you had teachers guiding you. So it was a very deep internal journey that just allowed me to kind of settle down because there was so much fear. There was so much trying to piece what my life was going to be. It was so painful to not know who I was supposed to be. And that, that really, that bardo, that in-between space of like, I'm not quite that, but I'm not quite this other thing yet. So having a quiet place where I could just connect with my own experience and be in this moment to moment, you know, with each meal, with each walking practice, with each sitting practice, the beautiful Dharma talks, they were so supportive every evening. It was so much Dharma that was, I was soaking in that really supported me to just like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I can just be here in the not knowing because I'm, because I'm practicing moment to moment mindfulness. And that was really like a raft that kept me afloat in this sea of like complete chaos. The practice was every little step, every breath in mindfulness was keeping this raft where I could take refuge in the present moment. And so that was a key piece of um, making the transition was just having places where I was in community and um, responsible to the people around me to practice and to show up in a certain way. Like a Schumacher, I was teaching retreats while I was there. I was guiding students. I was also learning. I got to take courses there. But um, that was huge because it was like a, you know, a handoff from the community of Plum Village to these other communities that were holding me in the midst of this transformation. Kind but of also a the soft reentry. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. And also, I think what what I really needed to make the transition was time. Like yeah, some people, yeah. some people will disrobe like within days or weeks after leaving the community. It took me years, you know, like two years after I left the community before I was ready to disrobe. And I really think I needed that that time to just sit with it. And I just didn't want to make a mistake. I didn't want to regret. And it was such a big decision. So I think, you know, luckily I was able to find places that were really supportive of me as a nun, but who wasn't in Plum Village, in the community. In, you know, they, they understood I was in this in-between space and they were really supportive of me in that space. So I had the time to, to take until it really was ready and natural and felt right. And, you know, I had a ceremony. I invited lay friends to who I was close to, even from when I was in Germany as a nun and from, you know, I was in England. And we did a beautiful ceremony where I gave up my monastic robes, my monastic precepts, and I just recommitted to the 14 mindfulness trainings, which are like the lay precepts, you know, like the Bodhisattva vows. I already was practicing them and had received them when I was a nun, but I was like, okay, I don't have the monastic precepts now, but this is my precept body. This is what will protect me. This is my direction in life. So we recited the 14 mindfulness trainings in my ceremony of disrobing. And um, that really felt like a clear path for me. Um, 
and and I and I had a chance to tell stories of my beautiful times as a nun and then have blessings people offer me blessings in the room of my future so I I felt really good about kind of ending that time in my life very carefully and in ceremony and launching myself into the next part of my life with a lot of intention what what a beautiful way to do it and and uh, and actually it's 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 even though you know you were making the transition what you were doing when you when you took the lay vows i mean you were doing not nothing much different than the rest of us do when we take our lay vows or our bodhisattva vows or depending on whatever tradition we're in um so you know it's like you just you you got into it a little later but i imagine you know the shift in your practice wasn't huge once you kind of did that soft entry away from a monastic community you sort of became like well shall i say the rest of us right exactly <laughs> exactly lay practitioners yes yes yeah. so this robe the shaved head wasn't this obvious marker anymore of some other path that i was taking and so yeah i just to wear regular clothes. <laughs> I was like waking up every morning and like, I have to choose what I'm going to wear today. I never <laughs> have to do that. You know, I get to wear colors <laughs> brown every day. Well, actually, there's there's some good things to to having a uniform <laughs> though too. You know, yeah, it makes it so simple. You just yeah. have to bring three of them on a on a trip, and you have very light luggage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and, and I know I've talked to a lot of people. I've heard a lot of people refer to it since the pandemic. More people are getting used to like wearing the same clothes, some of which are just sweatpants. Um, yeah. And uh, and it will be hard to like do that reentry back to like yeah. regular life. Right. Um, you know, on the reverse of what I kind of just asked about your reentry into. Uh, being a lay practitioner, um, in many times in 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 lay practitioner groups that I've been a part of over the, you know, nearly forty years I've been practicing, I hear some of the people, I've heard some of the people bemoan the fact that quote like quote unquote, if only I could leave, you know the householder life, the, the life of the lay practitioner and join a monastic community that then, then I could really do practice. Okay. What do you say to that? Well, I remember a woman coming to Thai who had three children, three young children. And she said, is it possible for me to practice in my life? Like you all practice here. And Thai said, absolutely, yes, you can practice in your life just as we practice here. He said, it is easier as a monastic because the, the distractions are, um, you know, kept at bay. But he said, there are lay people who practice far better than some monastics. And he said, if you want to, you can definitely, um, you know, become enlightened and do every, you know, do everything we do here, you can do that as a mother of three small children. That's what he told her. And he often told lay people, you know, you know, he was, of course, pro monastic, because he was a monk himself and had this growing monastic following. And he loved encouraging people to become monastic. But he would also say only do it if you're 100% sure. 
If you're 99% sure, don't do it. And mm -hmm. he would always say to lay people, you know, lay people can practice just as well as monastics and even better. And so, <laughs> so I mean, I think to that person who was who would say, I, 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 I would just like to go to a monastery and practice, there's different things I would say to them. You know, one is go check it out and see what you think, like go regularly on retreats and see how it actually is to be there. Go check out a number of different monastic communities to see how different communities are to get a sense for which kind of community might be best for you and your needs. But I would also say, um, are, there, are there ways in which you can bring this into your life already now? Which is, I think, one of the big gifts of Thai's practice is this everyday mindfulness is, you know, being awake as you brush your teeth, being really present as you cook, as you eat, as you garden, as you answer email, as you do your baby's diapers, you know, like all of those, every single moment of our day is an opportunity to practice and bring our minds into our bodies. It's not just on the cushion. And we didn't sit a lot at Plum Village like other places. You know, at IMS, we were sitting and walking all day long in silence. In Plum Village, we just sit in the morning, we sit in the evening, we have one hour of walking meditation in the middle of the day, that's it. Then we're meeting, we're talking, we're singing songs, we're working, we have free time. You know, it's like, it's not like heavy emphasis on sitting like other traditions. So how different is that from a lay person's life? If we sat, if we were practicing formally as monastics, maybe three, four hours a day, a lot of lay people do that. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And and that's, I think, why I, I just love um, the Thich Nhat Hanh uh, method, because it's not, it's not, it's not the typical Zen method. It's not the, mm -hmm. it's very different. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's different in a good way, but it's also mm -hmm. very, um, um, resonant to to the way I practice as well I I I, I was um, a lay lay minister and sensei in a, a Japanese uh, uh, group a Japanese Mahayana group that's non non non-sectarian so we have zen influences and we also have shin influences but the mm -hmm. emphasis is on everyday buddhism mm -hmm. everyday practice um mm -hmm. and and that's the emphasis and so when we Beautiful. trained in our men ministry school we trained to talk to people at their level um <laughs> we, we had to write dharma talks at, you know every week and and that but they had to be related to something that happened to us in mm. that week that yes. brought a nugget of the dharma and I, I and i feel that and I've, that's why i always felt that kinship with the way titna han explains um you know buddhism really and explains how to practice um so you know i referred a bit ago about finding your book particularly helpful on a personal level mm -hmm. you know our current times are challenging to say the least, you know, although every generation, every culture, every race or every group or of dis disenfranchised people has had their unique set of challenges throughout our time, as, as I know, that's one of your particular interests. But I believe 
uh, in this these this current time, like the last two years, three years, I believe white middle class people in the West were particularly unprepared for the level of uncertainty that sort of engulfed them, right? In in the last couple of years. And it's from that perspective, as, as if talking to someone from that demographic, say a white person in Europe, North America, I, I asked the question for them um, who my, they may say they don't feel that they were made for these times. Like your book, I was made for these times. They'd mm-hmm. be like, I was made for these times, these crappy times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are we made mm-hmm. for these crappy times? Are we really the ones we're waiting for? <laughs> and, and so I'd like you to talk to them in that kind of way and also maybe add again where that quote came from i know but why what does it mean to you why is it important to you and why you chose it for the book title again that's a long complicated question i hope you followed along i I can clue you as you go (laughs) sure sure yeah so the title came from clarissa pinkola estes um letter to a young activist and I love it so much because she says, you know, these are really difficult times and we can become so enraged or frightened or depressed. And yet she says, everything we've been doing has been training for precisely this moment. Everything has led us to now and we have everything we need to meet this moment. And it's such a powerful encouragement that I took it as the title of the book. Because for one thing, if we are here in this time, there's no other time we can be in. So we better be made for this time. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, there's no other way for it to be that like, like, you know, um, leaves turn in the fall they were made for for the time of fall you know blossom spring in you know blossoms open in spring because they were made for the time of spring we're made for every time that we're in every moment is is our moment to be here as fully as we can be and so i think you know for me the big teaching in this quote in this teaching from Clarissa Pinkola Estes is take heart, have courage, you know, Um, move into this moment, don't move away from it. It's by it's by flowing with what's happening that we'll actually be able to give our best whatever we have to give rather than resisting. And, and in the book, I also have a quote of the Oribe Mountain Elder who talks about, you know, this is a time where the river is flowing really fast. Some people are going to want to hang on to the banks, but we have to push off and into the middle of the river. The river knows where it's going. The river has a destination. We have to keep our heads above the water, see who's with us and celebrate because we are the ones we've been waiting for. It's a very similar message saying we're in a dangerous time, but the way to not be drowned in this 
overflowing river is to push off into the middle and flow with, to see that we have what it takes. If we hold on to security, to, you know, an idea of safety, to resisting what's happening, saying this shouldn't be happening. I don't want to be here. This isn't my time. We may get washed, washed away, but if we can stick, stick with others and claim what we do have, which is a lot, we have a lot at our disposal, then we, we really have an, we have an option to influence things that we don't when we're in resistance to what's happening. Absolutely. And that's, that's, that's so wonderful because it's that very resistance to change. You know, if, if, if the change is overwhelming, as I initially was referencing, it's, 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 it's like the second arrow, right? It's like the parable of the second arrow. It's uh, the only reason it's overwhelming is because you're resisting it. But if you, if, 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 if you don't resist it, just as you don't resist those of us who live in the Northern hemisphere, don't resist going from fall into winter because it happens every year and you better get used to it. And the, you got to, you find ways to enjoy the snow and the cold and the, and it's the resisting that causes you to grumble and be miserable and, and all those things that people do. Um, so now I think I've been remiss and not jumping right into a good overview of the format of your book and how it's such a helpful toolbox for these times. Um, we kind of framed what these times were and, all, and how you got there, but uh, the, your book is not just helpful for these times. It's sort of like what you were saying before. It's like, it's but for any times, because as we know about the nature of time, any time is these times. Um, so whether we're going through like, uh, a historic global pandemic or a natural disaster caused by climate change or, um, you know, we all have suffered major changes and losses or other crises at some time or another in our life. You know, so the wisdom in this book is timeless in its ability to help us meet any challenge with more courage, you know, wisdom, balance, and uh, I'm talking to my audience here. Some things you will learn from Kyra Jewell's teaching in this book are how to return to the home that your body and breathing offer. If I were to like say one biggie, if there you don't, you take nothing else away from this book, take that. Um, so even if you are surrounded by uncertainties and, and challenges, you can return to your body and your breathing and how to care for and center yourself. She talks about how to care for and center yourself in the midst of emotional upheavals. Again, stuff we all have, how to cultivate equanimity and joy, no matter what situation you find yourself in, how to cultivate the good in life. Even if your life is still marked by turmoil and loss and grief and great change. And so in each of the 10 chapters, the format goes like this. There's a narrative, there's a teaching, there's a meditation and a suggestion for journaling exercises. I love that you put all those different things. I know people who say, oh, don't make me journal. Don't make me journal. Well, don't journal, but they just think about it in your meditation, right? Um, but just the chapter titles will help you see how this book can be both a teacher and friend 
to help you weather whatever storms you're going through. They hit, they really hit all the high points of Buddhist teachings in a really gentle way. It's kind of like you're, it's kind of like um, sneaky learning, right? <laughs> I would say. So the chapter titles are Coming Home. Like I was saying, if you take nothing else away, that first chapter is a biggie. Uh, resting back and trusting the unknown, accepting what is, that's a tough one, weathering the storms, caring for strong emotions. I know you know all this stuff, <laughs> Kyra, but the audience doesn't. Impermanence and the five remembrances, calmly facing the eight worldly winds, and not everybody knows what those are, but they'll know it in the book. Equanimity and letting go, nurturing the good, and then chapter 10, we were made for these times. No, I was going to try to pick a favorite, but the key to this book is that you can use it as a first aid kit, right? And pick up the book and read it, the chapter that relates most to what you're struggling with at that moment. I personally find the lessons and meditations in coming home again to be a cozy place for me to return. It has only been more recently that I actually learned the importance of bringing myself back to my body. Um, when I started struggling with some repressed trauma, re-triggered by events around the pandemic, stuff that I thought I had all figured out. And here I was at 68 and it came roaring back in a way that I didn't even know was there. And mm -hmm. I learned from returning to my body, how I was able to get past that really, mm -hmm. uh, and, and heal. And so you wrote, um, my teacher Ty sums up his whole lifetime of teachings with one sentence. I have arrived. I am home. For him, the principal aim of mindfulness practice is to experience that we have already arrived here and now. There is nowhere we need to run, run to or to be other than right here in the present moment. And we experience ourselves at home, no longer looking for some refuge outside of us in some other place or time when we touch the truth that all that we long for and search after is here inside of us. And later, um, you mentioned uh, the teaching, the way out is in, uh, which I mentioned to you when we were talking before we recorded, uh, uh, your, your friends at Plum Village um, just launched a new podcast called The Way Out is In, co-hosted by Brother who and uh, Joe Confino. And I've really been enjoying that. And I, I recommend other people go um, subscribe to that podcast because that's an awesome podcast. Anyway, I think Titnat Han's teaching phrase, the way out is in, is a wonderful mantra to hold on to when our thoughts have gotten away with us and our emotions are cra crashing or crushing us. And can you speak a little more about how we might get ourselves back home or back in uh, what practices we could try. You don't have to give away the whole book, but just some mm -hmm. sense of it. And, and how do we know when we need to try them? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, one thing is when we are experiencing something really difficult or challenging that we didn't expect that we don't want is to, to slow down and notice that there's two things happening at any moment, right? 
this is a lovely teaching from Joseph Goldstein. There's the, there's the experience and there's our relationship to the experience. So there's this difficulty where that's coming to us from outside or from inside. But then there's what our attitude is toward that. And usually our attitude is aversion. You know, we re react to it. We want it to go away. We get angry. We get, you know, depressed. We blame. You know, we want something to change. But one of the first things we can do that can have a very big impact on our experience of going through difficulty is to notice any tightening, any tensing up, any you know, um, bracing against and, and to turn towards that with kindness to see if we can at least soften towards the part of ourself that's in fear or that's in denial or that's in aversion. Um, and so giving space for what's happening and paying attention to it, because sometimes instead of reacting to it if we can actually just feel it it's a completely different experience yeah like you know the ache of loneliness if we don't try to run away from it through consumption of food or media or people or whatever if we actually turn towards this ache and feel it how it really hurts and let ourselves experience where that is in the body. And, and we bring kindness to that part of ourselves. We bring a hand to wherever we feel that ache. We breathe into that ache. We, we nurture it like a, like a caretaker would care for a crying child. We develop a whole new level of intimacy with ourselves where we realize we don't have to escape what's coming up in us. We can actually get out of it much more quickly and with much more wisdom and benefit if we turn towards it, if we go in. That's how we get out, is by going in, is by connecting with our experience, making friends with it, bringing compassion to it, bringing interest to it, then it starts to shift. Actually, it starts to show us different parts of ourselves that we wouldn't have known otherwise. That's it. And I think the, the key is that spaciousness that you find when you do go in. I mean, I've experienced that and, and it's almost counterintuitive, uh, but, but when you, when you, when you're there, you certainly recognize it. So yeah, that, that, that's an excellent answer on that. Um, and then in chapters two and three, the teachings on resting back and trusting the unknown and accepting what is, you know, those are particularly relevant to where we find ourselves today. You know, my last few podcast episodes on my podcast, I, uh, when that was just with me and not a guest, I talked about how it's been almost two years of an upended life for most of us. You know, everywhere we looked, uncertainty surrounded us, and we really aren't good with uncertainty <laughs> words like trust and acceptance aren't something that seem prevalent in our culture or, or even people don't talk about that too much unless they're completely religious maybe 
but in a in a in a less religious uh, trust and acceptance, not so much. Um, especially in our culture, the latest couple years of distrust, really, we're, we're pretty much living in an era time of distrust and doom scrolling. <laughs> and I think uh, that the pandemic was a wake up call to one's understanding the Dharma in relationship to uncertainty. Most of us walked around in the near 100% belief, 100% belief that things were certain, right? Or they could make them certain, even if they knew things weren't certain by the nature of life. Um, they felt that they were. And you wrote about this particular scary place of where we are when we find ourselves in a whole different and compassionate tone. You wrote about it in a way that I've not heard it described. And that hints at a hope for a brighter future. You wrote, quote, in a sense, our culture, our society is dissolving. We are collectively entering the chrysalis and structures we have come to rely on and identify with are breaking down. We are in the cocoon and we don't know what the next phase will be like. Learning to surrender to the unknown in our own lives is essential to our collective learning to move through this time of faster and faster change, disruption and breakdown, unquote. Maybe you could say a couple more words about ways to feel, you know, trust or like to do a trust fall back into the chrysalis and find balance in our new maybe landscape of uncertainty. Yeah. Um, and I'm just looking at the tree outside of my window as we talk. And I feel like there's a lot of answers in, in nature. I mean, a caterpillar just does what it does when it dissolves. It just obeys, you know, and it doesn't know what's going to happen. I don't think it does. And yet, um, and yet the conditions are, are there for it to reconfigure itself. And I think um, spending time in nature where we open ourselves up to the wisdom of, of the trees, of the birds, of the soil, of the wind that, that does know how to adapt and change. Um, you know, and nature could be a house plant. Nature could be an apple that you eat. You don't have to be outside to touch nature, but you can, you know, a lot of, of wisdom can come from connecting to the earth and um, you know the, the elements of nature are not resisting what's happening what's unfolding and so we can learn about this trust fall as you put it just by being closer to the way things really are which which is what we see in nature is in the world around us, you know? Um, I mean, there's also great intelligence in the life force of our planet, which is, which is adapting, which is making major changes in response to what humans are doing. And, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the problem that we're, we're encountering is there are, there are consequences to what, what we're doing. But I think, you know, there's a, 
there's a paradox here of like, we need to rest back into this awful falling that's happening. We're just falling, right? Right now, we're just falling. We don't know where we're going to land. But there's a paradox where we need to rest back and at the same time, stand up and do something, right? So both happen together. And that's in the 10th chapter as well. Is like, find something that you care about. Act, speak out, join with others, show that you love something by protecting it, right? By um, telling the truth about what's actually happening and what needs to happen. You know, so both of those things go together. It's not just like, oh, we're just accepting what's happening and we don't do anything, right? But it, to me, what my experience is, is that when we find that place of surrendering in the, in the most, um, in the sense of being fully in our integrity and facing life as it is, that's where we find incredible strength and energy to give our all on behalf of the whole. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. It's like the um, acceptance is a word I think people have a lot of trouble with. Uh, um, I, uh, I, uh, a good friend and teacher of mine, Greg Creech, he's a, he's a, he's a, a big name in Japanese psychology, Marita therapy. And he, he talks about, uh, acceptance. And I, I know Tara Brock talks about radical acceptance and, and so forth. It's a, it's a, it's a big concept. Uh, um, it, it, and it comes more from the Eastern way of thinking of things rather than the Western way of thinking of things, because the Western way of thinking of acceptance is um, resignation, giving up, uh, you know, ah, uh, and so that's, I think, highlights that contrast or that, that dichotomy you were talking about is if you find it's, it's a, it's a dynamic acceptance rather than a resignation. And when you are, when you get, you know, fall in place into that dynamic acceptance, you have energy and you can lead with your body and your body, you know, you, you know what you can need to do and what you can will do. So that's true. And I want to just give two examples of this. Um, One is, one is a story Ty shares of a, of a nun who um, came to visit Plum Village from Vietnam, who was told she had three months to live from cancer. And so she was like, well, I'm gonna give my full uh, energy to living every moment I have left in mindfulness. And so she wholeheartedly, I mean, she practiced like her life depended on it, which it does. And she did every step in as mindful way as she could. She ate mindfully. She interacted with people just present to, to each unfolding moment. And the sisters convinced her, just go to the doctor to get a checkup, you know, maybe two, two months after she'd come to Plum Village. Her cancer was in complete remission. And she lived for another 10 or 15 years after that. Wow. And so, and so Ty gave that example as, you know, what our human species needs to do is come to terms with the fact that we have been given a terminal diagnosis and to give ourselves wholeheartedly to 
living fully in this moment, taking care of ourselves, of each other, of the earth. And that that is, um, that can actually bring about a change by fully accepting the, the direness of this moment, not by, you know, trying to deny it or run away from it or minimize it, but by saying we're really in serious trouble right now. We may not make it. How do we want to live with this, with this perhaps being our final decades as a species? And then the other story is just similar. Jim Bendel talks about deep adaptation as a, as a way to begin to really confront the reality that we're facing of, of uh, complete structural um, dissolution as climate chaos and, and other forms of chaos have their way. The pandemic is like an early, an early taste, I think, of what's coming. And, um, and he says, you know, we need to pay attention to cultures that have experienced this. Many indigenous cultures have gone through some kind of huge catastrophe. I mean, genocide, attempted genocide, where cultures, languages, songs, dances, you know, have been greatly, greatly, you know, destroyed. I mean, there's only some parts of culture remaining. And that, that there's a resilience in, in these groups of people where they have a wisdom of how they have moved through a human-caused extinction, <laughs> attempt at extinction, and how they have been able to stay engaged and stay keepers of their culture. And that is a huge resource for all of humanity right now is like, how do we, how do we meet the disasters coming at us and, and know that there are folks among us who have, who have the wisdom of, of being nearly decimated. I mean, and COVID hit native communities much harder as well. And, and that, that, that was, you know, kind of, addressed in native communities and, 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 um, and resolved to some, to, you know, in some way. So, so I appreciate his, his message that, you know, there are, there, this, uh, this wisdom at a collective level is there in our, in our human, you know, bank of, of knowledge. Yeah. And, uh, you know, another thing that always, although this is not as uplifting maybe, but it comes from Titnan Han's book, The World We Have. Um, uh, that's, all, that's always been very reassuring to me because I've, one of the lines I always quote from it is that, <clears throat> don't worry, Mother Nature knows, Mother Earth knows what she's doing and it may not involve us. Uh, so, so, you know, I, I, and that sounds depressing and maudlin and everything, but it, it is sort of like jumping into the river and letting it take you where it will. Um, we don't know what will happen, um, but mother nature knows what will happen. And, and, and I, I got the point of that. Um, another area I'd like to hear you talk about some more in the little bit of time we have is about weathering strong emotions like anger. Okay. Um, because the tip off uh, to how you teach this is you, 
you you use words like caring for, caring for anger and embracing anger. And, you know, using myself as an example, and I am relatively well acquainted with anger, wink, wink, uh, I tend to either get lost in it and continue to tell angry stories to myself over and over again, or push it away. And I think that I'm no different than anybody else, but I'm just using myself as an example. Then either way, whether I push it away or I totally get into it, not embrace it, like you say, but, you know, like let it feed on it, if you will. Um, after the fact, I feel terrible and absolutely have no compassion for myself. So help me and help others who feel that way. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, so, you know, it's so good. What you said is that you notice that after you do that, you feel bad because that's the beginning of shifting is realizing, well, this doesn't work. Um, <laughs> it doesn't work very well. It's, it can be seductive in the moment to like let our anger rage or you know, um, move into denial, but ultimately we really see how we were, we're, we're left worse for the wear. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, what, what I'm appreciating more and more is how our emotions really are, um, messengers, they're teachers. They're really important to get to know and to listen to, but, you know, with, awareness like they're actually really important guests that we want to be welcoming and entertaining um, but with mindfulness mindfulness is the host yeah um, mindfulness is the caretaker so it's it's important that we have um that energy to draw on so all of the daily practice, all of the moments of mindfulness, they really come in handy when we need that energy with which to embrace to be with a strong emotion. And so it's, it's that holding it, it's that being present with it that allows us to kind of um, not flee yeah. or not cave in to the experience in a way that ends up being harmful to us it's like being able to hang out with like god oh, this is uncomfortable <laughs> can i hang out with this can right. i can i feel into this move toward it again just like we were talking about moving toward the whatever we're afraid of whatever is difficult it's the same with a difficult emotion we move toward it rather than away from it and it's like you know we can befriend it we can we can shift our way of our patterning around anger so when anger is like burning like where is it burning in your body can you feel that and bring care to that burning like it's like heartburn you know how it's so painful that it's <laughs> so uncomfortable right like right, when right. we connect it to like physical pain it's easier to feel compassion right that oh that's ah. painful that's suffering ouch ouch it really hurts mm. and so turning toward that experience with like oh i feel you i know this is hurting this is burning this is like contraction this is tightness this is heat 
okay, I'm here, I'm here, I'm going to take care of you. I care about you. This is suffering. Because we can, we can go right into the judging our anger. I shouldn't be angry. I'm a spiritual practitioner. Or this shouldn't be happening. But if we, if we realize every, everyone has the seed of anger, everyone experiences anger. It's part of being human. Then when it comes up, we can be more like understanding of ourselves. Well, how can I, you know, take good care of this part of me rather than shove it away or let it take over? And so there's this, there's this kindness that can come. And then, and then anger has a chance to share a deeper truth that it's carrying. Because anger is just usually the surface. But underneath, there, there may be something really important there that we wouldn't learn if we took either of the two extremes of venting our anger or suppressing it. It may be that there's like an important memory saying, no, my boundaries were not respected in a very important way. And that's why this anger is coming up in this situation now. I need to go back and honor that I do need to respect my boundaries. I do, you know, sometimes anger is saying something really important that we need to listen to. It's not just this out of control, raging emotion. It's saying, <laughs> I care about something enough that I'm angry about it. Okay, so what's, let's look at the care. What's that about? How can we nurture the wholesomeness that is there in the anger? Because if you suppress the anger, you suppress the care. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, a, and you write about that in your book and that practice around that. Mm. And that, mm. and that really did hit home for me because um, uh, it's so true. Like if, if you're just raging and you're, you know, sort of enjoying that rage, which sometimes that happens, it's not an enjoyment, but it's, I don't know, it's, I don't know, it's like eating too much or something, yeah. you know what I mean? You just get into it and, um, mm. and, or if you're pushing it away, you're not really listening. It, it, just like if it was a friend, you know, going on and on and you think, oh, I wish they'd shut up, you know, or something <laughs> instead of really listening. Um, so yeah, it's exactly that, that that's really great answer. Um, you know, I referenced you, um, singing me to sleep earlier. Um, and I think some would find it a bit unsettling that you sing a sweet lullaby like song in the chapter on impermanence and the five remembrances in the insight timer course that I'm referring to, uh, not to do a Dan Harris here was saying it's a bit too woo woo. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, there is something very sweet and lullaby-ish about that. And you even put the lyrics to that song in the book. So even if you haven't heard it, and, and I also have a, a book called uh, chanting from the heart and has that song in there um, <clears throat> with actually the, the music. So that's a great book, by the way, anybody wants it, but um, uh, so, but there is something kind of could be disconcerting to people. Um, so what's the mechanism for teaching or healing with these sweet songs about what most people find not at all that sweet, like I am the nature to grow old and get ill. You know, there's, it's not really a sweet thing. I mean, the acceptance of it can be sweet, but you know, I just, I, I, and maybe you don't have an answer to this because maybe this comes from Titnot Han's head. Where does, where does that teaching mechanism come from to, to be so sweet and gentle about something that's not that to most people? 
Mm. Well, for one thing, I'll just say that for the singing, something happens when you hear a teaching in the form of a song that doesn't happen when you hear a teaching in spoken word. Mm. You know, there's a different part of our brain that receives that in a different way. The same when we sing. So I often, when I teach, I get people to sing because, you know, a lot of the teachings, you know, in the early days, Buddhism, with the Buddha, historical Buddha, people got the teachings orally and they remembered them by chanting them. Yeah, right. They put it to some kind of music so that they could remember. So a lot of the songs in Plum Village are guided meditations. So once you, you remember it much faster when you learn to sing it, and then it's there in your store consciousness anytime you need it, when you're eating, when you're walking, when you're sitting, that meditation can come up and guide you for a 30-minute, 45-minute session of, of meditation. So there's that different uh, pedagogical kind of... Um, right. Uh, uh, reasonings for for the song it's it just you know it, it it enters sort of a different doorway absolutely um and and you had a different part of your question about the softness and the gentleness the sweetness and the to sweet. that i yeah the sweetness um you know i led a, a guided meditation for teens on the five remembrances which are these awarenesses the buddha encouraged us to recite, to be to remember five remembrances, to remember them every day. I'm of the nature to grow old. I can't escape growing old. I'm of the nature to become ill, to die, to be separated from my loved ones. Um, everything, I can't take anything with me. All I have are the, are the actions that I've done in my life. So I led a meditation like that for teens and they were, I wondered how it would be for them because I thought, well, this is kind of intense for a 16, 15 year old. And they said at the end, that was hard, but it was really good. Like they got it, even as teenagers, how important it was to come face to face with these truths because they help us, even if we're young and we think we have a long time, but there might be people we love in our life that don't have that long. And these five remembrances can help us really treasure them more. So it's really, um, I don't know if I would agree with you that, that these aren't a sweet thing because they, <laughs> even though they're, they are challenging, but they actually help us to appreciate life much more deeply. And right. so, okay. yeah. and so that this, this teaching of, of Thai with the singing, with the, you know, the soft, quiet voice, the, the gentleness, it's like, you know, truth is sweet, ultimately, because we have, we have a lot of deception in our lives. And it's a very sour thing, in the end. Wow. Right? Yeah. I think you nailed it. The truth is sweet. That's mm -hmm. right there. That, that's mm -hmm. and, and also singing, like you said, the uh, pedagogy to to the singing it's like you know when you hear a song from your teen years or something and all those emotions you know overcome you and it's like 
whoa, it's like, but yet, so, you know, someone could say, oh, do you remember so-and-so from the fourth grade class? Well, you wouldn't, but if you played that song, then you'd remember so many things that would primarily be emotional. So yeah, I thank you for that. Yeah. And the words of the songs are kind of an affirmation. Like you're yeah. singing, I am solid. I am free. You might not feel that way, but by singing it, by letting it come out of your voice, your cells of your body are hearing that and they're right. changing in response to that. Like, Oh yeah, I am solid. I am free. So even if you don't feel like, so that singing can be very helpful in the midst of a strong emotion yeah. because you're, you're getting other parts of yourself to come online that you don't think are available to you, but that can be even in the midst of a lot of fear, a lot of, you know, anger, like singing, a song about, you know, being solid as a mountain, being this still water reflecting that can help you like, well, yeah, there is this part of me that even in the midst of a raging flame of anger, I can touch that there's part of me that's a still cool, quiet lake. Yeah, that's great. Um, and in the, la the last little bit of time we have left, I don't want to keep you, but I cannot talk about I cannot not talk about equanimity, okay, which has been my new subject to focus on in my podcast. I can't, I, I sort of am like addicted to talking about equanimity. Um, my last episode was called The Magic Power of Equanimity. And I was on the same page with you in your chapter, Equanimity and Letting Go. Uh, but you added something else that really captured my attention and made me see equanimity in an even broader more spacious way. It was a real teaching for me. You shared that Thich Nhat Hanh translate it, translate it, or translates the Pali word as inclusiveness, um, which you say gives it a more engaged, involved, and active nuance. That I loved that, and I had never really actually heard that being referred to as inclusiveness, and it really does. Well, just to, you know, it's sort of redundant to say it opens it all up, but it it, it does open it all up. Um, if you could just, you know, for the end time, is there something you can say about that inclusiveness and how it relates to equanimity? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so equanimity is this ability to stand in the middle of everything that's happening and not be pushed over by it. And what, what is part of that not being pushed over, not, you know, that being able to hold our balance, our steadiness, our stability is being able to see and include multiple realities. Mm. So part of equanimity is not taking sides, not seeing ourselves, you know, as us and them. So we include, we don't see anyone as our enemy. We see everyone has some history of suffering, of difficulty. It doesn't mean we don't hold them accountable if they're causing harm. But we can still do that with the energy of inclusiveness, of saying, you are my human brethren, my, my sibling, and, um, and I will prevent you from harming, but I won't push you and your humanity out of my heart. I will include, you know, this was the, the incredible beauty of the civil rights movement where 
black people that had been dehumanized by white people who refused to dehumanize those white people. Right. You know? Right. And so they were, they were calling out the, the better angels of their nature. Yeah. Uh, and that, and some people really responded to that. Some, some white people had a huge change of heart because they were in the presence of love. They right, were in right. the presence of fearlessness. That is the power of inclusiveness, this equanimity that you can do what you want to me, <laughs> but I'm going to love you. And I'm going to stand up for my humanity and the humanity of every single, you know, human on this earth. So that's like a, you know, the soul force of Dr. King. It was more powerful than the violence of, yeah. of, of, of white supremacy. And this is still, of course, a very serious battle that we're, or, you know, a serious struggle that we're engaged in now. It's, it's, it's still a huge obstacle to overcome. But I think inclusiveness can be um, a very helpful uh, I mean, again, it, it is the truth of, of we don't exist without each other. So the only way to live truthfully is to be inclusive of each other, is to um, always commit to seeing and, and honoring the humanity in each other, regardless of how different we are or how we agree with each other or not. Yeah. And it's, it's like, uh, it's like living, you know, putting your money where your mouth is. You say, I believe in uh, impermanence and interdependence. Well, you know, if, if we're not living an inclusive, mm -hmm. with an inclusive view mm -hmm. it, within our equanimity, then clearly interdependence is so much lip service, right? So yeah, I, I think that's so true. Um, is before we close, Kyra, is there anything that I should have asked you about that you, I, you wished I had talked about that you'd like to, to mention? I would just really encourage and ask folks, if you are able to get the book, please do and leave a review. Um, that's always a big help. And um, I, I just really hope that this book is of service and, and supports everyone who who comes in contact with it there's no doubt it will be um absolutely i i will put a link to your book um to your course through sangha live again running from november 2nd through november 28 uh, i will also put a link to your website and your insight timer course in the show notes um the name of the book again is we were made for these times 10 lessons on moving through change loss and disruption so thank you thank you so much Kyra, I am, I'm blessed to have you on this podcast and I hope uh, it, uh, it helps people far and wide. Thank you so much, Wendy. I'm so grateful for this time with you. That's it for this episode. I know you enjoyed it and I hope you learned a lot. I know I certainly did. Don't forget that you can join me 
and others in the private donation-supported Everyday Sangha that meets virtually via Zoom every other week on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time. The Sangha is currently studying and practicing the 37 practices of bodhisattvas. And please consider supporting the efforts of this podcast and all our related groups by becoming a community member for $5 a month. If you do, you will have access to blogs, members-only podcasts, an education series, a private Facebook group, and a special announcement. Our new Introduction to Buddhism class is launching Thursday, November 11th at 7.30 p.m. on Zoom. The class is free to members of the Everyday Buddhism community and the Everyday Sangha. Uh, You can look for our announcement about the class on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for the details of joining. But if you don't follow me on Everyday Buddhism, if you don't follow me or Everyday Buddhism on any of those social media platforms, platforms, just go to the Everyday Buddhism website and join the membership community if you're not already a member of the community or a member of the everyday sangha you can go to www.everydaybuddhism.com and click on the tab that says join community or sangha if you're already a member or you just became a member just go to the community membership community page and click on the drop-down menu that says Introduction to Buddhism Course and register for the course right there. And if all else fails, reach out to me through my website on the contact contact tab under More on the website. Well, that's all for the special announcements. So until next time, keep finding ways to make yours and everyone's days better. <music> 